I don't know if you saw it um, in the paper this weekend or in on AL.com, but there was a, a great article that uh, probably may have had a little bit of an offensive title for those of us who celebrate uh, ball game days as much as, as many of us in the South do, but it talked about the idolatry of Alabama football, and I don't know that there's any more fitting weekend to uh, write an article about that. Did anybody read that besides me this week? That was such a great article. Um, and in it, I know if, if you like football as much as I do, it's easy to see that headline and go, oh, I don't want to even hear this. But it was it was just so well written, kind of surprised to see it on AL.com. But the guy who was featured in the article, he's 31 years old, he's a physical therapist and a huge Alabama fan, as am I. But he just, uh, in the article, he went back and he really told his whole testimony how he grew up thinking that he was a Christian, and, and it took him a long time to come to realize that he wasn't really a follower of Christ, and he shared something about how he came to know Christ. But how along the way he, he began to realize that you know anything that is a greater priority in your life than Jesus becomes an idol, and he shared how in his life he had really let Alabama football become just, and just football in general become that thing for him. And he shared in that how he took the 2014 season off and fasted from all Alabama and Auburn football now. There are probably a bunch of us who wish we had fasted from college football this past weekend because a lot of uh, SEC teams lost this weekend. But it, it wasn't a joke to him. He said, you know, I just I don't want anything to come ahead of my relationship with Christ. And in it, along the way, one of the things that he shared was uh, just an analogy that David Platt had given. And he ended up sharing how really David Platt's preaching helped him to come to faith in Christ. But he said along the way he heard uh, Platt talk about how can you imagine, and, and I want you to think through this, it really is worth having to chew on. He said, can you imagine if you were from another country and you had no familiarity with American culture or with Christianity or any of our customs here, and you just came in and you observed what people do in the fall? And he said, you know, you watch and you see on Sunday that people gather in buildings for an hour or an hour and a half. And they sing some songs, and some people kind of get into it, and some people just stand, and some people just kind of mouth the words. And there's usually not a great deal of excitement, and then somebody usually gets up and talks for a while, and people try and stay awake and try not to nod off. And then, you know, there's just kind of a lot of this going on, a lot of checking the time. And, and then when it's done, everybody heads out the door. And for most people, you can't usually notice that there's any carryover from that a lot of times. There's not much conversation about what was said or done in that. They just kind of go their, their way. But you also notice that in addition to this ceremony that happens on Sunday, that on Saturday there's another ceremony. And a lot of times people drive a long way to get to that ceremony. And instead of gathering in dozens or hundreds, they gather by the thousands. And nobody's checking their watch. And nobody's nodding off. And in fact, it's the opposite extreme that people are, you know, cheering and screaming until they have no more voices and they're up and down and up and down and just, you know, can't get enough of it. And when it's over, it just carries over into, you know, eating and celebrating and can't talk about anything but that. And through the week, keep referencing back to that ceremony and what happened at that. And he just asked the question, he said, if you were a visitor from another culture and you watched this and if you knew... That a person's religious faith was what they're most passionate about. It's what they care the most about. What would you determine mattered most and was really the faith of those people? Well, it doesn't take a real smart person to draw conclusions from that, does it? 
it, it I just found it really convicting, and not not convicting so much that oh, Alabama football matters too much. If anything, that's taken a smaller and smaller place in my life. But it was just a good reminder that what we do as followers of Christ and what we do on Sunday morning, boy, it is worthy of bringing our passion to, isn't it? I know we've all kind of got tryptophan hangovers from you know too much turkey and and uh, feasting and and just being busy all week. But uh, and I, I know, I mean, literally, if we're real honest. I know every time you get to the Sunday after the Iron Bowl, 50% of us are just in a funk. It's like, I'm not sure the sun's going to come up. Can we just get over ourselves? Regardless of whether your team won or lost, nothing changed. Heaven is still open. Jesus is still on the throne. And his kingdom work is what matters. And, And let's live like that all the time. Let's live like that 52 weeks out of the year. And let's worship in a way that if somebody were a total stranger to our culture and they came in, that they would know this is what matters most. What this is all about is what truly matters most to us. And and our personality doesn't get to be an excuse for us being less than passionate about how we follow Christ. That's not what I'm preaching about today, but it just seemed like it was a fitting weekend. So Anyway, go back to AL.com, read the article. It's good stuff. But on to what we're here to talk about today. Um, We're in a series where we've been talking about the Christian virtues that many times seem like they're being lost in in our day and time. And today we're going to be talking about the virtue of loyalty. Everybody say it together with me. Loyalty. This is a big one. I'm curious to know how many of you would say by uh, raising your hands that you feel like that there is a real problem of a lack of loyalty in our culture today. How many of you see that around you? Look around the room. Keep your hands up. That you would say there is a problem with a lack of loyalty. That's just about every hand in the room that's raised. Okay, I'm going to ask you one other question. How many of you would say, and this, it's not pride to answer this question honestly. How many of you would say of yourself though, for whatever my other faults are, I am a loyal person. That's just who I am. Raise your hand. Don't don't be ashamed of it. Pretty much every hand in the room is raised. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for just a moment. Ask the question, is a lack of loyalty a major problem? Everybody agrees it is. Are you a loyal person? Everybody raises their hand. Do you feel the tension in just those two questions? The reason that I start at that point is because I need for you to realize that loyalty and and its evil counterpart, disloyalty, it's a lot like the issue of pride. You know what the Bible says about pride? That pride is deceptive. Do you ever pause to think about what the point of that is? The point of pride being deceptive is people who have a problem with pride because pride is deceptive, they never realize they have a problem with pride. The reality is hardly anybody ever who, who's really eaten up with pride ever realizes that they are. They think that they're humble. That's how pride works. We, we just we don't recognize it in our sense. We take pride in our own humility. Well, I will tell you, disloyalty works the same way. If you have a real heart problem with being a disloyal person, you'll almost never recognize it in yourself. In fact, if you've got your outlines, the first thing I would suggest that you add to your notes that's not in the notes at all is just this line. Disloyalty is hard to see in the mirror. It's just hard for anybody to recognize, I have a real problem with loyalty. I'm a disloyal person. And I'm saying that confessionally today. Recognizing that I would be the first. I've said it myself many times for all of my other faults. I'll tell you this. I am a loyal person. And boy, in the last week, 
the Lord has really convicted me of specific ways that I am not a loyal person. And yet it's so easy to not recognize that, to not see it in the mirror. So before you write today off and just kind of check the box and go, oh yeah, I, I know I'm a loyal person, so I don't, I don't need today. I want to invite you, open your heart up and your mind to what we're going to talk about today. And just be open to what the Holy Spirit may say to you today. Because we're going to really, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but we're really going to get practical in talking about four areas where we need to be very careful to make sure that we aren't disloyal people. But first I want to share the scripture lesson for the day. If you've grown up in church, you're going to be very familiar with this portion of the story. And I want to remind you of how Jesus, as he was dealing with all kinds of people, some who hated him and some who loved him, that he had this inner circle of 12 who were supposed to be loyal followers, right? The 12 apostles. And we know, of course, one of those 12 was completely disloyal and betrayed him. But within that circle, he had an inner circle of three. They would be the ones that are most loyal, right? But even within the inner circle of three, two of those guys were his best friends, Peter and John. John the Beloved and Peter, the one who clearly is going to be the chief lieutenant who's going to lead the way when Jesus returns to heaven. And so if anybody's going to be loyal to Jesus, you know, surely, if anybody on earth would, that these are the two, right? Peter and John. But it's interesting, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, on the night that that he shared in the Last Supper with the disciples, that Jesus is trying to prepare these guys for what's going to unfold in the next 24 hours and beyond. And he understands that it's about to become the most difficult that it's ever been, beyond anything that they could imagine, difficult in terms of remaining loyal to Jesus. And in trying to prepare them for that, he he speaks to all of them about what's coming, but he particularly singles out Peter. And he says in Luke's account, in the course of that evening when they share in the meal together, and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I need you to know that Satan has demanded to be able to sift you like wheat. That's not an expression we'd use today. If we were saying it in South Alabama lingo, we'd say, you know, Peter, Satan's asking to be able to kick your butt. He is wanting to wear you out. He wants to take you to the woodshed. And Peter's just like not sure even what to do with this. Because what Peter says, what Jesus says next to Peter is not, but, but hey man, I just want you to know, I believe in you. I know you're loyal to me. And I'm not worried about it, man. I know you've got my back. In fact, what Jesus says is in some ways kind of the reverse of that. He says, Peter, this is what the devil's asking of you, wanting to do to you. And I just want you to know, I've prayed for you. And after you've come back, then you strengthen the other disciples. <laughs> okay, what's between the lines there? What do you got to do before you can come back? You got to go away. You got to turn your back. You got to leave. You've got to be disloyal. I mean, so now we always get the Reader's Digest version in the Gospels. So maybe Jesus spelled it out to Peter, or maybe he just sort of left it hanging, but with a clear indication. I know, Peter, that you are going to to turn your back. But after you've come back, then you strengthen your brothers. And, and of course, Peter at this point, he realizes what Jesus is saying. He's like, whoa, 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 stop the train, Jesus. What are you saying here? I want to be real clear. If there's nobody else on earth who's loyal to you, you can count on me. These other guys, uh, they may be turncoats, not me. I am your buddy. I will always have your back. And so that's the setting where we'll read the, the verses that I've got in your outline. Where the Matthew, his account, says Peter's reply to this was, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
In other words, I am super loyal. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Okay, we don't think in terms of when the rooster crows next. He's talking about sunup. So what he's saying is, Peter, not only are you at some point down the line going to be disloyal to, to me, you won't make it through the next 12 hours without disowning me three times. Can you imagine how that would feel when the person that you are most committed to says, I know you're going to disown me, and you'll do it multiple times before 12 hours is up. And, of course, Peter declares, look, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Well, you remember how this works out, don't you? Just a little while later, in the course of the same evening, they're going to cross over the Kidron Valley, go to the Mount of Olives, spend some time in prayer. The disciples are going to catch a few naps while Jesus is praying in earnest. And while all this is going on, an angry lynch mob is gathering in Jerusalem, and they're going to march over with clubs, spears, swords, and torches And they're going to come and arrest Jesus. Now, in Peter's defense, it wasn't empty talk. He meant what he said. He was in earnest in what he said. He fully believed that he'd be loyal to Jesus no matter what. And if you remember how that unfolded when the mob came for Jesus, Peter tried in that moment to live out what he had said. What did he do? He whipped out a sword, and he didn't just do it for show. I mean, the moment he pulled out a sword, he pulled it out swinging. I love that about Peter. I mean, he's never sure what to do, but he's never in doubt about doing something, you know. So he just, he whips out the sword, and he swings, and you know he's going for the guy's head. He's not swinging for an ear. Malchus, the servant of the high priest, managed to duck in time. He didn't lose his head. He just lost his ear. That is a guy, he, he's not out to injure somebody. He was trying to kill someone in that moment. And, and, I mean, Peter knows the numbers are totally against him. Short of Jesus performing a miracle here, he knows we're going to die, but this is what I just promised Jesus. I will die for you. And then Jesus sort of puts a freeze frame on that moment. No, 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 Peter, not, not like this. This is not what we get to do. I didn't come to usher in violence as the way to bring in the kingdom. So put your sword away. And this is really the great challenge for us. Is when we don't get to define how we want to be loyal to Jesus or to somebody else. I mean, have you ever found yourself in situations where you would love to demonstrate your loyalty through violence? I mean, come on, we live in the South. We know there's some people who just need killing, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we just love to give somebody a good punch in the nose as a way of of setting things straight. We all... (laughs) Thank you, Antonio. We, Antonio, we, we all know we feel that way at times. And, and Peter's like that. He's like, yeah, I'll show you some loyalty. Get, give me my sword. And when, G, when Jesus in that moment said, no, that's not how you get to live out your loyalty to me, through violence. Put your sword away. And in that moment, Peter is now completely lost. If I can't fight as the way to show you my loyalty, I don't know how to be loyal to you. And, of course, Jesus is then... You know, roughly taken and bound and beaten and and just, you know, the next 24 hours are just an unspeakable nightmare for Jesus. But in the hours that follow, the the disciples flee because there's obviously just chaos in the darkness as they try and grab the followers of Jesus. And one of the disciples, literally, his clothes are ripped off as he's trying to escape and they're trying to grab him. I mean, it's a violent moment. And so everybody runs into the darkness and Jesus is carried away. But Peter follows 
watching from the shadows, and he actually has the courage to work his way into the courtyard where he can see Jesus, who's being put through these mock trials. It's an incredibly dangerous thing that he's doing. I mean, he is walking into the enemy's lair, basically. And as you would imagine, people recognize him. I mean, it's only been an hour or two ago that... He was there in the garden, and it's not like Peter blended in. Peter's the one who drew the sword. Everybody noticed Peter. And as he tries to just blend in in the crowd out there in the courtyard watching what's going on with Jesus up here, people begin to recognize him, and they say, Wait a minute, what are you doing here? We know you. You're one of the guys who followed Jesus. And in that moment, all of Peter's loyalty evaporates. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that guy. Oh, yes, you do. You, you've been following him around for a long time. We've seen you with him. And Peter, now he's really pushing back. He's like, I told you, I don't know what you're talking about. And finally, one of the ladies in the crowd said, oh, I know who you are. I've seen you with Jesus. And even your Galilean accent gives you away. See, they're not in Galilee. Jesus is from Galilee. And, and Peter and Andrew and James and John are all from Galilee. And they... You know, they can read the dialect. They're like, of course you're one of his followers. You can't even say anything without it giving away that you're one of his followers. And so Peter, being a good sailor, a good fisherman, he, he just begins to curse. Bleepity bleep, I told you I don't know the bleeping man. And in that moment, the gospel writers say that Jesus turns and from a distance looks straight at Peter. And Peter catches Jesus' eye. And he realizes in that moment, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. I said I would die for him. And now I've disowned him and cursed him three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now if that were the end of the story, it would be a sad story, wouldn't it? It's not the end of the story at all. For three days, Peter didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to be loyal to Jesus. didn't know if Jesus was worthy of being someone to, to try and be loyal to once he sees him murdered. And then with the resurrection and Jesus going back and personally restoring Peter, he becomes as bold a man as walks on the face of the earth, as loyal to Jesus and just has the heart of a lion. But Peter's story is a good reminder to us of a simple fact when it comes to loyalty. That true loyalty is proven, not proclaimed. Amen? I mean, how many times have you heard people profess loyalty like Peter did, but... Then they just didn't back it up. Peter's story is just this big reminder to us. It doesn't matter what you say. What matters is what you do. So if we ask the question, are you loyal? We all raise our hands. I absolutely am loyal. It doesn't matter who raises their hands. It doesn't matter what we say. What matters is what we do when we're out here in the world. Are we loyal to God? Are we loyal to people? Are we loyal to our families? Are we loyal to the church? The words of Solomon ring true in Proverbs 26 when he says, Many will say that they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? You ever felt that way? Oh, let me tell you, I have. Up until about five years ago, I thought I just had friends right and left. I thought I had friends for life. And then I went through a divorce and went through the darkest season of my life. And I started wondering if I had any friends. I mean, it, it just, it almost felt that way. Like, where'd they all go? And I share that, not so you'll feel sorry for me, but just because, you know, as I look around the room, I realize a bunch of you have been through similar situations. 
You've been through those seasons when more than any other time in your life you needed friends and they were not to be found. Isn't that tragic? That it's in the darkest seasons of life that friends are the hardest to find. When you go through a divorce, when you go through a separation, you go through a breakup, you, you go through the loss of a loved one or even losing a job. Have you just ever noticed how hard it is to find your friend in, in times like that? They, they just are hard to come by. You begin to discover how few true loyal friends there are in life. But there are people like that out there, and we're called to be those kinds of friends. I'm reminded of a story, not from the scriptures, but just from real life, the story of Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese. Did you ever see the movie 42? If you didn't, such a great movie. You don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy that. Everybody knows who Jackie Robinson was. He was the phenomenal baseball player who was the first African-American to break the race barrier in the major leagues. And the really striking thing about it was he did it in the 1940s. This was 20 years before the the whole movement had, had gotten any traction. The civil rights movement that made such great advances in the 1960s was hardly birthed in the 1940s. And in 1947, Jackie Robinson is now the first African-American man playing in the white man's league, in the major leagues. And as you can imagine... People just despised him for it. He's such a tremendous athlete and a tremendous man. But people just couldn't stand him because you're a black man playing on a white man's world. And so just the abuse that he had to put up with, not only from fans and opposing players, but from his own teammates. People who just despised him just because he was black and playing with white people. And so there, there came a point in his career where it was just really too much to bear. I mean, people are making death threats against his family and just, you know, random acts of violence that are you know, threatening them. And his own teammates are just hurling so much abuse at him. And one day, it's like it's just all come to a head. And he, he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I'm a big Dodgers fan, so I appreciate his story that much more. He's playing for the Dodgers as they are in Cincinnati. And in the middle of a game, the fans have just become particularly abusive. And they're directing it particularly at him as he's out playing second base. And it's just, he's at the breaking point. And the things that they're yelling at him, I won't begin to repeat from the pulpit because it would be offensive. It was so bad. Pee Wee Reese was a star in his own right. He was the Dodgers shortstop. And he truly was one of the elite players ever to play that position. And he was also the close friend of Jackie Robinson. And so he's standing there just, you know, 30 or 40 feet away. Seeing and hearing all of this abuse being heaped on Jackie Robinson. He's at the breaking point. And finally, just in the middle of the game, as people are just shouting all kinds of vulgar things at Robinson, Reese has heard enough. And in the middle of the game, he just pulls off his glove and throws it on the ground and marches over to where Jackie Robinson is standing on the other side of second base. And he just puts his arm around Jackie. And together he just stands there with him and he just stares down the tens of thousands of Cincinnati fans who have packed the stadium that day. And the entire stadium goes silent. Jackie Robinson would later say in his life, that one act not only saved my entire career, but he said it saved me in ways that you can't imagine. All Pee Wee Reese did from one perspective, was just go over and put his arm around a friend. 
But it was so much more than that. He saved the guy's career. He saved the guy's future, his life, his legacy. Because at the moment that he was at the breaking point, he said, I'll put my reputation on the line to stand with you. And he did. You can rest assured, Pee Wee Reese lost a lot of fans. He lost a lot of respect in the eyes of of the most racist part of the public and in the eyes of his most racist teammates. They despised him for it. But here we are, all these years later, applauding Pee Wee Reese for being a loyal friend. That's what loyalty looks like. And loyalty is going to cost you something. You know, I just shared with you a story from the scriptures of disloyalty that ended up being restored over time. But I want to share one other story with you that you probably aren't familiar with. Maybe you are. It's not one that's right on the tip of your tongue, probably. And it's, it's a story of disloyalty, but also of great loyalty. It's the story uh, that revolved around King David and his reign, but the loyalty of a friend of David by the name of Ittai. That's not a name we use a whole lot today. Thankfully, we don't name our children after this poor guy. But uh, Ittai is one of the greatest examples of loyalty in the Old Testament. Just a, a quick reminder of, I, I spent a lot of time this fall in First uh, and Second Samuel. Just such good material there. And in Second Samuel, as you get deep into the reign of King David, things have just become really weird in David's family. Just a quick reminder of, of some of what had gone on. That there was some really bizarre stuff that had gone on between his kids. One of his sons by the name of Amnon had raped his, one of David's daughters by the name of Tamar. And as a result of this, another of David's sons by the name of Absalom was so offended by this that he did what I referenced earlier. He decided he needed killing. And so that's what he did. He killed his own half-brother. And that created such an awkward situation. It's like, well, you can't completely disagree with, with what happened here. He was a rapist. Clearly he was. And something needed to be done. Maybe killing was a little too far, but, but something needed to be done. And so then David, as the king, is left with the question of, so what are you going to do now with your what's left of your family? And so David just, he was Israel's greatest king, but he was not Israel's greatest dad. David struggled immensely with family life. And he never really knew what to do with Absalom. And so he just kept him at arm's distance, and he did what every dysfunctional family does. He just refused to talk about it. That's the first rule of the dysfunctional family, you know. We just can't talk about our dysfunction. If you talk about it, you might have a chance of getting better. David just pretends like it's, it's not going on. Well, Absalom is so offended by this, he, he eventually works his way around to where he's allowed to come to Jerusalem to be near David. But even at that, David won't interact with him. And so over time, Absalom, who should be David's greatest supporter, one of his greatest supporters, is his own son. His heart is so turned against his dad. He's so hurt and offended, and and that offense turns to bitterness and disloyalty. And so what he does is he begins to secretly become completely disloyal to his dad. And, And the way he does this is David's the king over all of Israel and Judah. And so... Uh, It's not easy to get an audience with David or or his key leaders. And so Absalom positions himself near the palace where people would come and go. And any time he would see someone come up who needed a ruling from the king, they needed somebody to, to render justice, he would stop them and say, I'm sorry, but, you know, the king's very busy today and he doesn't really have anyone who could see you today. It's such a shame, isn't it? Why don't you tell me your story? And he would listen to everybody, every day who came along. He would listen to their story, and he would just kind of shake his head and go, I understand where you're coming from. 
And it is such a shame that the king doesn't have time to hear your story because you really do need justice in your situation. I'll tell you what, if the day ever came that I could be appointed a judge or a leader, I would see that you got justice. And Samuel says that when... When these people would come and they'd realize they were talking to a prince, they were talking to the son of the reigning king, that they would usually you know, go to their knees and they would bow down when they realized that they were talking to Prince Absalom and that Absalom would always grab them by the shoulders and pick them up and say, oh, no, no, you don't need to, to do, do that with me. You know, we are brothers. And he would kiss them on the cheek and hug them. Listen, we're, we're friends. And I just want you to know if the day ever comes when I get to come into power, I would take care of you. Now, the unspoken part of that is, I'd take much better care of you than what my dad is doing. Absalom did this for four years. That is patience. He is working a plan. And after four years, he has set the stage, and he knows that he has affected the hearts of people across the land. And then he secretly gathers 200 men to be his little inner circle. And he asks for permission to go to Hebron and have a little ceremony. And what his dad doesn't realize is he's going to Hebron and he's going to send out the word. At the sound of the trumpet, all the men of Israel come to arms, gather the army. Absalom is going to be king. And so they blow the trumpet and the men of Israel charge out and they they run to Hebron. And now a massive army is assembled, clearly with the point, Absalom is going to march into Jerusalem. He is going to kill his dad and he is going to assume his dad's throne. It's the ultimate act of disloyalty. Well, David gets word of this. And he knows the hearts of the people have turned. There's only a remnant that are still faithful and loyal to him. And so it's such a sad day. David's not a young man anymore. He gathers his family. He gathers his closest allies. And he says, we've got to get out of here. We've got to leave and find a safe place. Absalom will come and kill all of us. And so as they're leaving, one of the foreigners, a foreign mercenary who's been faithful to David, is marching out with him. And David, his name is Ittai. He's he's not an Israelite. He's a Gittite. What a, what a dreadful name, Ittai the Gittite. Yeah, moms, don't even consider it. That's, that's a terrible one to stick on your kids. And you know, David is saying to Ittai, listen, you don't need to follow me because it's going to be dangerous and costly for you. And you're not even, you're not even an Israelite. Why should you do this? And so in uh, 2 Samuel 15, I just want you to see this one little exchange. It says, the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, meaning just, you know, it hadn't been all that long that you've lived here. And shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? In other words, I don't even know where I'm going. You certainly don't want to wander off with us and and have to bring all your men and their families with you. So return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. So David has given Ittai the ultimate out. Listen, I'm not going to hold it against you. In fact, I'll bless you as you go. Thank you that you were willing, but you, you don't need to do this. It'll be too costly. It says, but Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives. He's not just saying that generically. He's calling, when you see all four caps, L-O-R-D, he's calling on the name of Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, he's come to faith because of his relationship with David. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely wherever my Lord the King may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Now that's loyalty. 
He says, I understand. This isn't going to be easy. This isn't going to be pretty. But, sir, you understand. Wherever you go, I will be there. And whether it's a battle to be fought, I will be there fighting. And if it means you're going to die, then they're going to have to kill me first. Whether it's in life or in death, sir, I am with you. And David is so moved by Ittai's commitment. He puts him in charge of one-third of his army. And when the civil war is fought between the troops of Israel faithful to David and, and the massive numbers that are following Absalom, there's a, a huge loss of life, but there's a tremendous victory won, and Absalom is killed, and one of the three commanders of the armies of David is Ittai, the Gittite, the loyal friend. He's a foreigner. He's a nobody, but he's a nobody that God used because of his faithfulness to the king. That's a picture of loyalty. Now, having said that, I want to take just a few minutes and flesh out. Okay, loyalty is one thing to talk about in general terms, but I want to just mention four specific places. And I want you to just take a few minutes to specifically examine these areas in your own life and say, am I loyal in these four? Now, I'm going to name four, and they're not in some rank. They're not in order here. All four of these are important. Where is loyalty most vital in my life? Are you with me? If you're with me, say, "Uh uh-huh. All right, let's go. One, two, three, four. Number one, loyalty is vital to your spouse and to your family. Mario Puzo said, the strength of a family, like the strength of any army, is its loyalty to each other. Someone else has said, blood makes you related, but loyalty makes you family. That's a great line, isn't it? Blood makes you related, but loyalty makes you family. Some of us have got relatives that weren't loyal. You know, all it took was Thanksgiving to be reminded of, of you know, David's family is not the only dysfunctional family in the world. But it's the people who are really loyal to you that become truly your family. In Malachi 2, the word says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? So guard your heart and remain loyal to the wife of your youth. There's no place that it's more important for us to to be loyal than with our immediate family and for those of us who are married with our spouse. Now, there's the obvious level that comes to mind that it's tremendously important that we remain loyal and faithful and don't have an affair. Tragically, we live in a time where somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the couples, married couples in America, admit in surveys that one spouse or the other has been unfaithful and has had an affair. It's just a staggering number. So obviously there's that form of disloyalty, and we don't want to ignore that. We live in a time when that, that's just become so strangely the norm that it's like, you know, if you don't meet my needs, if you don't meet my emotional needs, or if you don't excite me, or if you don't, you know, do this or that for me, then I'll find someone who in the moment can do that for me. And obviously the Lord is saying, that is totally off limits. That's as disloyal as a person can be, and there are a lot of ways we, that we need to guard our relationships against that. While that is tremendously important, that's really not what I even want to focus on. Because I think it's very tempting for us to say, well, if I've never cheated on my spouse, I've been loyal to them. And the truth of the matter is you can be as disloyal as the day is long and never have had sex with somebody outside of marriage. There are lots of other ways for us to be disloyal to our mates. And one of the ways that has become most common is to say things that are supposed to be usually funny at the expense of our mate in public. Have you ever noticed how we have turned this into a form of entertainment in America? If you haven't caught on to that, sit down and watch some sitcoms in prime time on TV. This is the, the way that we do comedy today. 
is we, we stage it where husbands and wives just do everything that they do for a laugh at the expense of their mate. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, where everything, your mate is the butt of the joke. And we have learned it well. And I hate even using this as an illustration because I can remember a time in my life when I used to do this all the time. When I was a very young man and still fairly newlywed, I remember the night. I love being the funny guy at the party. And I could make people laugh. And I remember on a particular night when we had had guests in our home. And I had just made lots of great jokes and made lots of people laugh. And my wife was the punchline on most of those jokes. I thought she provided great material. Got lots of laughs. And I remember when that party was over, God convicting me. I mean, it was just one of those come-to-Jesus moments when the Lord so convicted me and showed me just for laughs... You hurt the heart of somebody that you care deeply about or say that you care about. And every time you were making everyone else laugh and stroking your own ego along the way, you were doing it at the expense of somebody that I care about and that you're supposed to care about. I'll tell you, that, that changed me in that moment when the Lord just convicted me of that. that. That's a form of disloyalty to make jokes at the expense of the person that you're supposed to be most loyal to. Of course, there are ton of other ways for us to be uh, disloyal. We get creative about that. You know, when we look lustfully at somebody other than our mate, maybe it's at the gym, maybe it's at the pool or at the beach, when we're doing the double full body check, you know, undressing people with our eyes, that's disloyalty to the one that we owe complete loyalty to. Anytime, and you know, this used to be something that it would be pretty much just say it man to man, but we live in a time when this is a male and female problem. Anytime that we use pornography as a way to satisfy our drives and desires for a married person, that is total disloyalty to our mate to try and gratify sexual desire by what we look at on a computer screen or any other place to try and give ourselves pleasure in that moment. Ladies, I'll say a word to you directly. If you're a married woman... And you're dressing provocatively. You're wearing skirts that are cut up to here and stuff up top that's cut down to here. And you're, you're showing the world everything that you've got. Listen, in your own home and in your bedroom, I hope you've got the shortest skirt and the deepest cut neckline in the world. And I hope you flaunt it for your husband as often as, as he'd like for you to. But when you go out in front of the rest of the world, leave it at home. Because you're being disloyal to your mate when you're flaunting things that are only going to be a stumbling block for other men out in public. Amen? That's disloyalty. It's disloyalty whenever we put anything ahead of our kids, ahead of our mate on a repeated basis. And it's so easy for them to see that. When we put our job our hobbies, our ball games, our golf game, our whatever it is consistently ahead of spending time with them. All of those are forms of disloyalty. So it's important to put our spouse and our family in that place of priority. Uh, secondly, loyalty is desperately needed with our friends. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says, A friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. A friend is always loyal. How do friends wind up being disloyal to each other? Well, I mean, obviously, when we aren't there for one another in times of greatest need, that's, that's a clear form of disloyalty. But I'll 
I'll tell you, in my own observation and experience, the biggest way that I think we struggle with disloyalty with friendships is gossip. I mean, do you see how often people do this? It, it ought to make us all paranoid. How, how many times that we'll see people that they are such good friends, these two people, and yet when one of those friends is not present, the other friend is so willing to talk about them behind their back. But they are bestie besties just all the time unless one of them is not there. And I wonder how many times we do the same thing. That we are good friends with someone, but when they're not around, that we are so willing to say, Have you noticed their kids and how they appear? They must not ever discipline their kids because they act the fool all the time. I tell you what, I can't believe that they don't just take them out and wear them out like they need it. You know, I mean, do we not talk like that about our friends? Or can you believe that car they bought? I mean, here they were just last week talking about, you know, how they're struggling financially. And can you believe what they are driving? I mean, you know what he does for a living. They ain't got any business driving a car like that. You realize what that is. That is gossip. And that's disloyalty. When we talk about the people that we're supposed to be loyal to. But you know what the flip side of that is? You don't have to be the one with your mouth moving to be disloyal in a gossip conversation. When other people are talking about your friends and you just sit there and let it happen, that's pretty much equally disloyal. We had a situation, and it was involving someone who really is a friend and a neighbor who also hosts a small group in their home. Oddly enough, it happens to be a small group from a church that I used to pastor, which is kind of interesting to have that going on or just, you know, Right there, and that's that's all cool, and that's all good. But the friend who's close to Jackie for quite a span of time would, a lot of weeks, come over and just in the course of conversation would share the things that got said in small group the night before or that week. It was sort of like apparently parking, because we live on a, it's almost a cul-de-sac, so everybody kind of has to park in front of our house and in front of the neighbor's houses and all anytime any of us have small group. And so, I guess walking by our house became great motivation for conversation starters. And so, apparently, I was, and we were, the topic of conversation most weeks. And then we would get a report on kind of a weekly basis as to what kind of trash talk there was about me. Occasionally about Jackie, but mostly about me. And it would just... Week by week, just beat Jackie down. It was like you, I could just see when she had gotten the latest, not like she was wanting to hear it, but, you know, she'd always have to be told the latest of what negative stuff had been said. And it, it, was, it was killing me to watch her hear this week after week. And finally, thankfully, Jackie spoke up and just said what one friend should say to another. Okay, it's bad enough that people are going to gossip, that they're going to say ugly things or, or, or untrue things, but... For it to happen in your house when you're my friend isn't okay. Because you're a party to it even though you don't say anything if you're letting it happen in your house. You're my friend. And friends speak up and don't allow that to happen. It's hard to speak truth like that, isn't it? But that's what true friends do. Because that's another way for friends to be disloyal is I'll be your friend and I'll say the nice things to you but I'll never say the hard things to you. That's not loyalty. Loyalty means I will speak the truth to you. I'll even speak the truth when it's a hard thing to say. And sometimes the hard 
things are to just lay it on the line and say, we're too good of friends for me to keep my mouth shut and pretend like this is okay. It's not okay. And by the way, relationships usually emerge stronger as a result of doing that. A third thing, third area where loyalty is vital is to Christ's church. American Christianity, and it's not just American Christianity, it's Western Christianity, has become individualistic to an unhealthy degree. And I don't even think we tend to realize it when we've grown up in it. Um, And I I certainly grew up with this kind of mindset. We, We probably all did. That when we think about our faith, it's so much an expression of just sort of who we are as Americans that we are such an individualistic society. I mean, do you ever think about, I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, there's a lot that's so good and right about what we believe in as Americans and how we live our lives. And, you know, we, we hate the concept of communism and we should. We don't think communally. We think individually. We believe in a capitalistic culture. Every individual is responsible to work and earn their way in life and should be free to advance in whatever way they want to. And those are, those are all good things. But you see, that's bled over into areas of faith in ways that have, have shaped our thinking not to make us more Christian but to make us less Christian. That we've carried over this idea of individualism in such a way that we tend to think about our faith as a purely individualistic idea that you being a Christian is all about you having a personal relationship with Jesus and that's the end of the story. Christianity is about each of us individually having a personal relationship with Christ and we pretty much hear that and go, well, yeah, that's right. That is what it's all about. And it's about living out this personal relationship with Christ. But we... We've bought into that at a level that does not reflect the New Testament or the ideals of the first century. That to be a Christian is to belong to a family. In fact, to come to know Christ is quite literally to join the family of God. And you can't believe without belonging. We'll say that one again because this is a critical part of our faith that a lot of us miss. You can't believe and not belong. And this doesn't mean that the way you get to heaven is to join the church. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying something that ain't too far removed from that. Connection to a local community of faith has become optional in American Christianity. You know that's true. The average American Christian attends church once a month. One time a month. That is not New Testament Christianity. It's not. We look at church as being optional. I'm just, when I say we, I mean the American church. We feel like, I mean, church is a good idea and you ought to go when you can. But you, you know, the the American version of that. Listen, can I just say what the American version of Christianity is? What it is in the Bible Belt? You know what this looks like. You hear the same garbage I do. Well, you know, this church over here, man, the worship is so good. It is just so good. I mean, I won't fill in the blanks. But we know the places that are the worship meccas around here. I mean, for heaven's sake, one of the strong churches in our area, they've got a professional musician who toured for years. I mean, he's one of the best voices and worship leaders out there. I'm like, that's so cool. That's, that's awesome that they've got that. But we have this mindset that's like, well, I like to go here or there because the music is so good. But you know, the preaching over here is really good. So I'll go over here sometimes for that preaching. Or this is my podcast church. Cause, uh, so I'm partly loyal to this church. But I love the worship over here. But you know, this church has just got the most awesome youth group. 
And that's where my kids like to go. So we, we actually are kind of swinging in that direction. But the children's ministry down the road is phenomenal. Have you heard what they do in the summer with their kids? So we're thinking about going over here. That's the deep south American version of church involvement. And I want to tell you, that's pathetic. It ain't Walmart. We're not looking for the store that's got everything on their shelf to meet our needs. That is such a consumeristic mindset that says, I'm looking for the church. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say this. We're just looking for the church that best meets our needs. When I hear that, I'm just to the point I want to say, then look somewhere else because we ain't it. We're not looking to be the church that just best meets your needs. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to assemble a family that's going to be an army that says, we're not looking for the place that best meets our needs. We're here to say, we are the church, and we are here to reach and change the world. We're not here to see if we can get our our strokes and to say, you know, Butch, are you the best worship guy around? Because we're going to evaluate you. We're going to see if you're the best musician. We're going to see if you give us the feel. You know, Mark, are you the best preacher? Do you inspire me? Do you make me laugh and cry in the same message do you get it done at that level and you know lee and tate are you guys going to give our kids more programs more activities the best experiences that are just going to attract masses come on because it's on you we're not going to be that kind of consumer church we're looking for the place where we get to come and die to self so that christ can live in us Not to say, will you meet all of my needs? Listen, I understand. We have a commitment to care for each other's needs. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about meet my needs in terms of, I want the best. I want the best preaching. I want the best music. I want the best youth program. I want the best kids program. I want the best programming that's at the coolest place. Can we please throw that out the window and say, let's be a New Testament community of faith. What does that look like? Well... Luke gives us a pretty good description in Acts 2 when he says all the believers devoted themselves. Devoted themselves. That sounds like loyalty to Christ's church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to sharing in meals. They didn't just show up for church. They didn't just show up for worship. They, they were in each other's homes. They were eating together. They were doing the Lord's Supper together. They devoted themselves to prayer. And all the believers, everybody say all the believers. All the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. That does not sound like anything I've ever observed in American culture. It sounds really different, doesn't it? It sounds like something that requires great loyalty. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not pursuing some ideal where we meet up here every day. Understand the significant difference is this. They didn't have it 2,000 years ago. If they were going to learn what Jesus taught, if they were going to be instructed in that every day, they couldn't have a quiet time in the Word. They had to assemble and be under the teaching of the apostles who heard what Jesus said. It's going to take a while to get this all written down. And so they had to meet on a daily basis to get that. But you get the idea. They were committed. They were passionate. They were growing daily because they were loyal to to Jesus and to His church. And it wasn't this thing of, well... What's the weather look like outside? What do you think? Beach or church? Family activity or church? Can I just surprise you with this thought? Church is a family activity. (laughs) Going to church together and then going and sharing together out of the overflow of what we experienced of Christ in His church. That's a great family activity. Amen? 
Loyalty to Christ church. And then finally, just loyalty to the Lord himself. The psalmist said in Psalm 78, Then they remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer, but all they gave him was lip service. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. Were not loyal to him. I wonder how many times I've been guilty of that. Talking a good talk, but just giving lip service. There's a lot of ways to be disloyal to the Lord. I've made commitments about the time that I'll spend with him on a daily basis. And I think about how many times I'll, he, he was faithful to be in his chair. How many times was I unfaithful to be in my chair to converse with him and just receive from him. To pour my heart out to him. How many times I've been disloyal to him in terms of speaking up for him and representing his name. We need to recognize that disloyalty is born out of a divided heart. We're about done here, but I, I want you to hear what James has to say about what the root of this is. He says, come close to God and God will come, come close to you. That's good news, isn't it? You ever feel like God's just done with you? Wonder what God thinks of you? Here's what God says about you. If you just come close to him, boy, he'd draw near to you. But he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Why? Because our loyalty has been divided between God and what the world had to offer. You know, the good news is when we belong to God, He's faithful to us even when we aren't loyal to Him. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, If we're faithless, He remains faithful, for He can't disown Himself. That's comforting to know, isn't it? That for all the times that we haven't been loyal, that He stayed loyal to us. But it's also important that we balance that out with what Jesus said in, in Matthew ten thirty two and 33 when he said, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I'll also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I'll disown before my Father in heaven. You ever feel like that was like the opposite of what Paul just said? I'll tell you how I think that plays out. It's not that God rejects you and you're outside the family whenever you fail to be loyal to God and to speak up and represent his name. But the reality is Jesus intercedes for us on a daily basis. Jesus is going before the Father and saying, man, pour out on Paul what he needs today. Paul's got a need today, Father. Lavish this on him. Darlene's got a need today. Oh, God, pour out on Darlene what she needs. Give her specifically this today, that Jesus is always there to intercede for us. But Jesus also said, just be clear about this. When you fail to be loyal to me in the world, don't expect me to speak up for you before the Father and ask him to pour out on you what you need. When you no longer live in that vital connection where you're loyal to us, I'm going to let you just live with your own resources and powers and weaknesses and let you see how that plays out. Because he understands that's what will drive us back to him. He says the root of this is a divided heart. We love God, but we love the world. And we want to have both. Proverbs 21, 21, and I close with this. He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. Now, I just want to ask you as we close, we all raised our hands. I'm a loyal person. But when you examine your own life, are you loyal when it comes to your spouse? Are you loyal at every level? Are you loyal with your kids? Are you loyal with your friends in terms of what you say and allow to be said? Are you loyal to Christ's church? Do, do you bring a commitment to this family? that looks anything like the first century church? And are you loyal in your relationship to the Lord himself? And if not, rather than giving ourselves a pass, how about if we respond just as James said? It's just a call to repentance. He says, weep. 
grieve over this because it matters. And return to the Lord. Draw near to the Lord. He'll draw near to you. Would you join me as we go to Him together in prayer right now? God, we recognize that in our own lives, sometimes we think we're doing well in areas where we've just learned to make excuses for our brokenness and our failures. And we ask you today, help us to see ourselves as we truly are and help us to turn to you. Forgive us for where we've been unfaithful and less than loyal to you, to your church, to our family, to our friends. And help us to live faithfully, faithful to you, faithful to our spouses, faithful to those that love us. Lord, I realize that there are some of us who need for the very first time to turn to you in faith. Would you pour out on us an ability to trust you even though we can't see you? If today you need to do that, I want to invite you just from the privacy of your own heart to say, Jesus, today I want to stop living for me. I want to live for you. I want to change my allegiance. I want to change my loyalty to be loyalty to loyal to you and so I now surrender my life to you I commit my life to you I believe you died for me and rose from the dead would you now forgive me and live in me God thank you for hearing and answering our prayers thank you for drawing near to us when we draw near to you and we offer ourselves to you in a fresh way today in Jesus name Amen